whole idea of using a Jewish Jesus and the crucifixion imagery goes back into the late 19th century from about 1873 on. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Professor Ziva Amashai Meisels, a modern art scholar who goes on to share in the following conversation her thoughts about artists across the decades who have used imagery from the Passion and the Holocaust and the complexities entailed in that. Professor Ziva Amashai Meisels, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've written and lectured extensively on the Holocaust's impact on modern art and the symbolism used to represent the Holocaust. One of the earliest symbols that uh, seems to be used is the Passion and Crucifixion of Christ. Would you describe a bit about how artists like Mark Chagall, Mark Rothko, and Francis Bacon used the crucifixion in this way? Chagall's first crucifixions came after uh, pogroms in Russia and to the Bayless affair where they were anticipating there would be pogroms. This was a natural thing for Chagall to go to already in 1930 as he saw the Nazis rising to power. He didn't even wait for 1933 uh, when Hitler took power. So uh, the idea behind all of this was to show that uh, Jesus was Jewish, and that in hurting Jews, one was actually hurting Jesus. And that's a sort of undercurrent in Jewish poetry and in Jewish thought from the late uh, 19th century on. So it was a natural for Chagall to start using the crucifixion imagery and after he did, it was natural for a lot of other people, including Rothko um, and lots and lots of others, to, to use that imagery as well, because his white crucifixion was uh, exhibited in Paris in 1939. Uh, it's a 1938 painting, but it was exhibited in 1939, and um, it was so apropos of the moment uh, that people got the point. Also, in his first time that he that he showed it, he uh, had used very clear Nazi symbolism, uh, like uh, backward swastikas, to make clear just what it was is he was saying, or a Jew who has a sign saying "Ich bin Jude," I am a Jew in German, to make his point very clear. It was then shown again in the United States in the early 1940s and uh, really struck people as highly appropriate. So lots of other people followed suit. And he was doing crucifixions throughout all of this. So he was really the person that led the way in, in this since it had been already part of his own iconography for many years. 
I read that you'd said that uh, the Nazis had sharp reactions to the Jewishness of Jesus being used in paintings like this. I wasn't sure if you had any more information on how those reactions uh, manifested if they were boycotting exhibits or anything like that. I, I know that we we know generally how they banned artists, so I didn't know if it was really just more of that kind of impact. Yes, uh, another artist who had used crucifixion and, and um, uh, passion imagery was Otto Pankock, who was a German Christian. And uh, they closed down his show. He had a whole show on the Passion. And there's a book with all the pictures. He united Jews and gypsies, who sort of look alike. They're both sort of dark with, you know, dark eyes, etc. And made it very clear that the oppressors uh, had German snub noses, you know, and were sort of porcine in character. And um, they not only wouldn't let him publish, they they closed the exhibition, horrified. The man was uh, suspected of everything in sight. So if you were doing that in Germany, you were certainly suspect. And uh, Leah Grundig also in 1934, uh, 1935 actually, uh, used crucifixion imagery in her series of uh, the Jew is guilty, uh, and it wasn't as apparent because it was in modern dress and uh, the man was simply stretching out his arms in a cruciform position. But she was, um, she had gone underground, and she was a communist, both she and her husband, and uh, they had gone underground as artists. And uh, they were arrested. He was sent to Sachsenhausen. She was exiled from Germany and fortunately was able to go to Palestine where her father had uh, settled. So, yes, the Germans were very against this, but this idea goes way back again into the same period of the late 19th century when... um, Historians who were anti-Semites declared that Christ was not a Jew, uh, and that um, one of them even uh, came up with the idea that he was an Aramaic Syrian, and therefore not Jewish. Uh, the whole thing was sort of this crazy theory, but it was adopted with both hands by the Nazis. The striking shift to me that I saw with, say, Francis Bacon's uh, three studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion, his take on it was that he was showing that all mankind took part in the uh, moral issues that were happening. Is that what you have understood the three phases, the three studies for the figures at the base of the crucifixion to mean? It's more complicated than that. Uh, Francis Bacon had a love-hate relationship with fascism. He was fascinated by pictures of um, Hitler and the fascists. He collected them, uh, and he he collected pictures of their victims as well. Um, the figure with his hand behind his back, the figures that are blindfolded are 
Well, I, I know exactly what the sources of those figures are. And uh, he also called them the fates and the humanities, which is the fates. And uh, he gave them different meanings at different times. But the fact is that he um, actually worked on the uh, painting uh, at a time when this was uh, extremely apropos. And he, he had further series of paintings that reacted also in a strange way to the Holocaust that had all sorts of um, images of uh, that were taken out of photographs of Hitler in the background. It, it's a it's a complicated series. It's not just he also had a whole problem with humanity, which is another you know problem. But as far as he was concerned, all humanity was a bad idea. But um, that uh, and was guilty of at least something uh, and uh, not morally responsible. Uh, not moral and re responsible for, um, not for Christ's death, but for death in general and for victimization. And um, they were victims who victimized. It, it gets a little bit complicated in there. But uh, it's definitely, to my mind, it's a reaction to the rise of Hitler and the... Uh, um, atrocities that he knew were going on. As Bacon was very figurative, uh, there's also, in contrast, Mark Rothko, which did he not also represent the Holocaust in his color field paintings? Not in his color field paintings. Uh, well, first he represented it as a crucifixion and as a series of pietas. That was the first way he reacted to it, and that was in the during the war, and immediately thereafter. The Pietas, the attunements, are immediately after the end of the war uh, and the end of the Holocaust. Uh, later, uh, his Seagram murals, uh, which are color fields and scorching, um, and they were supposed to be in a up-class dining room. They never got there um, because he decided against putting them there, and uh, he was against the whole idea, finally. But they show a definite burning. Uh, you go from brilliant reds and orange, it was an orange frame, uh, to deeper maroons until you get to blackness and charred things against a maroon or brown background. And I do see that as part of his reaction to the Holocaust, mainly uh, because of what he said about them afterwards. When uh, Werner Hoffmann came to him and asked him to uh, decorate a chapel to Holocaust victims in Germany. Uh, he thought about it, and then he said, he, he showed him the Seagram murals, and he said it would have to be something like this. 
so that he made the connection to a Holocaust chapel in Germany, which I found was very interesting. Very. And I'd also read that he, at least for some period of time, refused to exhibit in Germany. Is that your understanding? Uh, yes. Uh, he, this was part of a, an attempt by Hoffman to uh, make peace. Uh, it didn't work. I mean, there is no such Holocaust chapel in Germany. So... The other reaction, sort of also a, a different perspective, is what Pablo Picasso did with his work in reaction to the Holocaust. Can you describe a little bit about that? First of all, his big painting on the subject, which is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, is called the Charnel House. And he definitely thought of that as a reaction to the Holocaust. It went through several phases of working, and it was like, uh, it's in black and white, like the Guernica, and um, he used positions uh, that are taken from photographs of Holocaust, uh, Holocaust victims and um, Nazi victims. Uh, and uh, he was trying to uh, show it uh, um, not only as an anti-war and anti-murder problem, but as um, something that one could not push under the table because he has it. These, these bodies are stretched under a table that has a still life on it, and there are flames going up or smoke going up in the background, so that the whole thing resonates as something to do with the Holocaust. He then did, uh, in, I think, 55, he was asked to do an illustration for a book that was coming out dedicated to uh, the Holocaust and French resistance to the Nazis, etc. And he did a prisoner, you know, in a striped shirt whose eye is gouged out. It's really... An extremely expressive um, element of it. And there are elements of Holocaust iconography that run through various works. For instance, the work that he did on um, the massacre in Korea, he has uh, Goya-esque soldiers in, done in a robot style shooting naked and pregnant women, which did not happen in Korea, but did happen in the Holocaust. So, uh, again, he's taking parts of things and bringing them together uh, as part of his own iconography and anti-war iconography. But he's influenced by Holocaust images. I had read um, your thoughts on the massacre in Korea that perhaps that using the Holocaust imagery for other wartime events like the the Korean War, that it might hinder the moral aim of the Holocaust story. Is that, is, did I get that right? 
Well, I think, uh, no, I did, in the end of my book, I said that there's a, a problem, and I still think so, uh, as to whether you want the Holocaust to be only something that has to do with Jews, whereas other people had their genocides in the in the Holocaust, like the gypsies um, and uh, homosexuals, and they they were part of that awful thing that's called the Holocaust in a broader definition. So you get either Jews or everybody killed by the Nazis, uh, which included Catholics. Uh, and you get the question of what is it you want to learn from the Holocaust? Do you want to be able to use it for other um, things so that it, they may not even be uh, the right comparison, but do you want to learn from it for the future, or do you want to leave it as something that is stuck in a certain time period and has to do only with anti-Semitism? And I think that that's a problem that people have been going back and forth on ever since it started. I think it's a it's a serious problem. Has to decide. Each person has to decide how they want to handle this. That brings me to uh, a lot of the painters that have done art uh, after the war, and some by artists who uh, did not personally witness the war. Um, and I believe uh, Robert Morris jumps to mind for his 1980s Untitled series. Would you yeah. speak to uh, some of the images in, in that series? Well, he took, uh, first of all, he took photographs of Holocaust victims found in the camps after the war. Uh, in the death pits, in the um, furnaces, etc. And he told me that he was haunted by the Holocaust in general. I mean, he's an American Protestant, but that he was haunted by the Holocaust as something horrific that had happened and that he had to react to eventually. And that the eventually was in the mid-80s. Uh, and there's a problem involved in this because um, what he did was he took the images and uh, using various media, he also burnt around the edges of the images and framed them in uh, very aggressive images that can include skulls and bones on one hand and penises and whips on the other hand so that you uh, get this practically sadomasochistic um, element that comes in there, or anyway, sadistic element that comes in there that frames the corpses. Um, one of the corpses he turned into a very sexy image, and um, he and I discussed why he had done this, and he, he didn't see what the problem was until I pointed out that turning um, somebody in a death pit uh, into a sex symbol um, might be something that people didn't like. 
And we had we had this whole discussion on this problem. You know, there's the question is what you can do with this whole problem of the Holocaust. And this was a period when he he had uh, addressed the atomic wars. He had he addressed later. He used Goya imagery to address um, the immorality of humanity, if you want. Uh, so this is a period that he was involved in this whole kind of Im- imagery, and the Holocaust seemed to him something that, that had to be dealt with, that had to be faced. There was uh, the Hostages series by Jean Fautrier uh, that he had done in the sanitarium. Fautrier had been, had been uh, he was a sculptor and painter, and he had been in the, uh, um, connected with the resistance, not really in it, but connected with the resistance. And um, they jailed him, and he got away with it by, you know, saying he was insane. So they put him in an insane asylum. Uh, if he had done that in Germany, they would have put him in a concentration camp. But uh, it, this way, they stuck him in an insane asylum, and it was near a place where they were killing hostages, so that if he went out of the asylum at night, he could wit- witness these hostages being killed. And he makes clear um, that one of them is Jewish, or more than one. But one he names La Juive, the Jew, the Jewess. And her body is a sort of down to a heart-shaped torso uh, and battered. All of these images are battered and have uh, barely signs of humanity, uh, for the most part with a profile down, drawn down a face. Um, and they're, they're really mostly abstract. Uh, but they have to do with what he had witnessed during the war. And there is uh, a statement on his part, by calling something la juive, uh, that this also has to do with Jewish victims. So the whole hostage series is not about Jews. It's about French hostages. But among them are Jews. French hostages that were taken out and shot. I had read that someone uh, had described it as one of the most beautiful monuments to the dead in World War II. Would you agree with that? Or if you don't agree, what would you say in your thoughts are one of the better monuments to the the World War II victims? Um, I'm not really a monument person. The ones I went into in... um, No, James Young is your monument person. I leave that to him. He's really interested in monuments, and I'm not so much. (laughs) But uh, the ones I went into were the ones that were done uh, in Israel by Bezem and by Tubarkin, both of them uh, trying to uh, do what, what Israelis have done with the Holocaust or had done in the 40s, which was to take it as a... from the Holocaust to revival or rebirth, that this uh, you had to get over the Holocaust and, and 
you know, have the state of Israel. It's a very Zionist way of looking at uh, the Holocaust as something from which you cannot go back to Europe for. You, you have to start over. And in their different ways, they try to show this. Both of them had a Holocaust background of sorts. They were not in the Holocaust. They were both here. But uh, Besom had had uh, had arrived literally on the last boat of out of Europe um, to to Palestine, and his family was practically completely erased in the Holocaust. And uh, Tumarkin, who was born in 1933 with a German socialist communist father and a Jewish mother, uh, they were forced to divorce, and she came to Palestine uh, with him. And uh, he later met his father. Uh, So... um, he had this complicated relationship of German versus Jew and Israeli, but this his monument was more abstract, and most people don't really like his monument, but it's a matter of taste. They didn't get it. They just didn't, didn't get the symbolism. It was too abstract for them. But it's still standing there in the middle of Tel Aviv, so... One of the painters that you mentioned earlier, uh, Leo Grundig. Yeah. Would you describe a little bit, you've gone into some of uh, one of her pieces done in Germany, but the comparison of the work she did after she was in Israel, uh, the the one in the Valley of Slaughter, which okay. uh, features, uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah. So, she did several series in Germany, um, starting from uh, one that took her a very long time to do. She started it in '33, and she continued doing it to '37, which was called "Under the Swastika," and uh, you could actually see the buildup of terror. It starts from uh, people being scared of each other and discussing and running and um, hiding and being spied on and playing at sh- children playing at shooting a hostage, uh, that kind of thing, and being an outsider. And uh, went on to um, serious pictures of beatings and uh Hardship and people, you know, hiding in uh, manholes and being found by Germans. She herself, as I said, had been arrested and uh, interrogated, uh, but more as a communist than as a Jew. Um, and when she she also did a whole series called uh, "The Jew Is Guilty." And uh, there she she actually puts herself in one of the pictures, and she's wearing a, ma- a Stormer mask, what uh, the kind of caricature that you know, Stormer, the Nazi uh, paper, would put out, and uh, her unhappiness with this situation. Uh, 
when she was in Israel, well, it was, it was at that time still Palestine, uh, she uh, did the valley of, in the Valley of Slaughter, uh, and there the imagery is absolutely horrific. It involves people being shot, uh, and people being gassed. Uh, since she had a connection with uh, the communists in Israel, uh, she uh, knew what was going on. And um, it, her her pictures are really uh, very very harsh and very um, expressionistic. Uh, she has, for instance, a um, train wagon where everybody's dead, and she has it blasted open so we can see the corpses inside, and she stresses. Uh, women and babies and old people and the same in the gassing and uh, a monster trampling children, etc. Uh, so in Germany, she did not feel as free to uh, express herself as she did in Israel because nobody was going to yell at her in Israel. And actually, the Haaretz newspaper published her drawings as a portfolio and and then as a booklet. Uh, whereas in Germany, she had to be very careful at the beginning of what was going on. And after she went into hiding, it was easier uh, to to for her to express herself. At, at one point, the Grundigs had uh, run away to Switzerland, and then they decided they were going back to Germany, where they were in danger, and they were going to continue the work there. So uh, both of them were very brave in that uh, thing, and he was uh, sent to Sachsenhausen. So, and he he was the one that wasn't Jewish, so he was sent to Sachsenhausen, and only got out at the end of the war, and then started producing more uh, pictures on the Holocaust. Uh, two versions of paintings called Hans Grundig. He he did uh, two paintings on uh, two victims of fascism, where of the four victims who are dead outside of a concentration camp with chimneys, uh, one is Jewish. It has a clear symbol of a Jew, and one is communist, of course. Talking about the bravery of artists, yes. it, it brings to mind the artists who are working even in the concentration camps. Uh, so you had uh, mentioned Zoran Music, who was mm-hmm. interned in Dachau. Did he do work in the camp or after? only after? He did work... Well, it's hard to say because the works, some of the works are dated 1945, and you don't know whether that's before the the liberation. It, things were falling apart in Dachau, and he was uh, able to do things um, towards the end of his imprisonment there. And uh, other things he gave to uh, the soldiers who uh, liberated the camp. So it's really hard to know exactly when he did 
them, but they are corpses. And the the, the thing with these corpses is that they his corpses are not entirely dead. As they are dying, they turn to each other. They talk to each other. And uh, when he got out, he uh, went back to Yugoslavia and uh, painted uh, folk pictures and uh, abstract hills and then more abstraction. And then in the early 70s, he went back to his corpses. He had had it with Vietnam and Biafra and everything, and he did a series called We Are Not the Last. And he explained that uh, when we were in Dachau, we said, okay, this is absolutely ghastly, but we are the last. This will never happen again. And it is happening over and over and over again, and he lists all the places where it's happening. And you have to be aware that we are not the last. And here, his corpses not only lie in heaps, but uh, sort of raise up against the picture plane uh, and stare at you as they also talk to each other and talk to you. They're very, very strong paintings. So he he's one of the few that actually um, went back. Some of them, some people continued after the Holocaust. But he's one of the few that went back in such a dramatic way to his Holocaust drawings. The shift from what he did in, say, 45, that was categorized as witness recording, as opposed to what he did in the 70s, which was a lot more expressive, would you say? Yeah. Yes, I would. For the artists yeah. who uh, were in Theresienstadt, uh my understanding is, is it Bedrick Frita was one of the main artists who uh, was working while interned at Theresienstadt? Yes. Would you describe a bit about your thoughts on his work? And the one that the ones that jump to mind are um, film and reality and the quarters of the aged. Well, he he and the other members of his group, Leo Haas, etc., um, adopted a, a, a German expressionist style that was not uh, like the book, of, but more like George Gross, uh, where they um, wanted to rip the face of, of what the camp was supposed to represent and show the death that lay behind it. And the the fact was that people were being sent from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz in regular groups. So uh, this group of artists had the materials to work because they were making art to decorate the camps and signs to tell people what you're not allowed to do and, you know, things of that sort. And also all sorts of presents for the Nazi officials, you know, portraits and what have you. But so they had materials, and they also found a way to get some of their stuff out of the camp uh, so that it could get to the Red Cross. And the Red Cross's visit uh, was in part inspired by some of these drawings. 
Um, but after the visit, uh, they were sent off to concentration camps. Uh, Frida died uh, in a concentration camp. And uh, his son was adopted by Haas, who was one of the few survivors of the group. Um, but they're all showing expressionism that practically all of them did uh, takes on the cafe scene that was set up for the movie that was made of Theresienstadt uh, to show how normal Jewish life was there. Listen, they're all in the cafes and they're being served. You know, and music is being played. What else could you want out of life? Um, and they showed uh, people who are starving to death and that there's uh, nothing in the cups that they're being served and the waitresses with their low decollete uh, have shrunken breasts and, you know, practically no skin on their arms and... Uh, heads that are looking blankly into space. So it was really showing the, in the, the house fronts, there are skeletons behind the house fronts, showing the awful truth about what was happening while the Germans were trying to fake it. The films that were hugely important to the Nazis, uh, that they were forcing these uh, inmates to participate in, was there any indication to you about how uh, the drawings that we have from that time frame, how they were saved from uh, the camps? How, how they got out of the camp or how they were saved in the camp? I believe you'd mentioned that some of the drawings were smuggled out of the camps, yeah. and that's how the Red Cross um, yeah. uh, was even aware that there might be an issue. Well, probably uh, by uh, communists. Uh, they were part of the active groups in the camp that were that had connections outside. This being a very important part of if you want to get something out of a camp. So uh, that was part of it. Because the Jews uh, who were not communists didn't have that kind of connections because all the Jews were in the camp, not outside of it. Now, you could get things out because uh, Theresienstadt was uh, a town. So there were all sorts of ways in and out you could get things going if you tried hard enough uh, and didn't get caught. But um, the, uh, the rest of the drawings, the, most of the drawings, were um, hidden away uh, in the ground, in cupboards, in, you know, that had holes in them and all sorts of things like that. And Leo Haas was one of the persons who went after the war to the camp and retrieved them. So, so that's how we have so many drawings from there. What are your thoughts on whether or not, um, I, I know you were saying that these uh, artists were wanting to strip away the, the facade that the Nazis were creating. Do you think there was any uh, indication that some of these inmates also had uh, 
were conflicted about participating in the films, even though they really didn't have a choice? Have you? I had read something about how that there might have been an indication that the artists were also um, not frustrated just with the Nazis or their situation, but perhaps also with themselves participating. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I would think that there was a, a great amount of self-loathing going on there because they were doing the city, the sets, they were doing the pretty fence houses, etc. And um, they knew it was all false. Now, how much you hate yourself uh, for doing that kind of thing um, and how that's going to influence the way you depict things is uh, a deeply personal matter, and there are different reactions to it. I think that Haas and uh, Frida had the strongest reactions that way. And uh, their depiction of um, the inmates and the workers and the skeletal figures um, are particularly... uh, grotesque and uh, but but also extremely extremely strong in their expression on the other hand uh Frida's uh son Tommy uh got an album for his i think third birthday where his father drew all the different things he could be when he grew up and it's a very optimistic album. It shows Tommy standing by the window looking at the birds go by and all these different things that he could be. So uh, th- there were moments of clear optimism of wanting to go on and uh, moments of utter despair and loathing. There were two sculptors that also did Holocaust symbolism that I'm aware of, Jock Lipschitz and Leonard Baskin. Would you speak about their work? Their works are actually completely different uh, in what they were trying to do and what they were trying to say, and has to do in part with when they did their works. Uh, Lipschitz uh, who, whose works that have to do with the Holocaust are mainly done during the war, although they start already in 1933 when he did David killing Goliath, and Goliath has a swastika on his chest. Uh, his uh, main works that have to do with the, with the Holocaust come out of the 40s, uh, the early 40s, and he did um, a statue called Prayer, where the Jew who is uh, praying, he, he's praying the in the, I don't know how you say it in English, the Kapara ceremony uh, on the eve of Yom Kippur, where you uh, swing a rooster or a hen, depending on your sex, around your head, and slaughter it. And this it's this sacrifice that is going to be the sacrifice instead of me. Uh, that's something that Orthodox Jews do, or very Orthodox. Um, 
So he depicted the, this Jew doing this, and meanwhile, his own kishkas are torn open, and his body is torn open. The prayer book is in flame, and uh, he seems to be falling apart, but there's something growing inside of him that looks like a lamb, a lamb's embryo. Uh, and eventually, um, he then did sacrifice because having promised, you know, to kill the, the rooster, you have to do it. And uh, he did that. And um, the sacrifice shows around the time that they were starting to work on the state of Israel, he started doing work on that that project as something that would ensure the growth of the state of Israel. Um, and the prayer was sort of his own prayer. He believed in sympathetic magic and that his own works, that if he was having David kill Goliath, uh, then the Jews would get rid of Hitler. You know, that this was a way of making this happen. Although he admitted to me that, yeah, of course it didn't work. Um, but this is the way he saw things. Baskin is a completely different uh, proposition because he he never says that he's working on the Holocaust, although he had a whole album of Buchenwald's um, photographs. And uh, he had done a, a play or ballet on Buchenwald before he did his sculptures of dead men. And um, while I was talking to him about his his corpses, which are usually laid down, or there's the hanged men that are literally hanged, um, both in prints and in sculpture, uh, he denied at the beginning that it had anything to do with the Holocaust. And after we talked for about an hour, uh, he admitted that maybe, anyway, they actually did have a connection and that they they were his reaction to the Holocaust. So you can take that both ways, but that's that's the way the conversation went. And it wasn't wasn't just to get rid of me because we kept talking afterwards. <laughs> what do you think his reasoning is for denying its connection to the Holocaust? Um, first of all, because at the time that he started working on these things, uh, people were tired of the Holocaust. It was. It had been an okay subject in the 40s. By the early 50s, the public really didn't want anything to do with it as a subject. And the worst thing you could be called was a Holocaust artist. I mean, Lipschitz didn't even want to be called a Jewish artist. He wanted to be known as an international artist. This This fight for not being labeled in a derogatory manner is very important to artists. And uh, I think he he just, uh, he when he started it, it was there. 
and it it's present in his Icarus symbolism, which is he he does um, the sacrifice of Isaac as uh, as a winged figure uh, who is actually killed. Uh, he has a lot of different ways in his, the poetry that he is illustrating, the poetry that he wrote, all show that he was thinking in those terms. But uh, it got hidden, and it's, this is true of a lot of artists. Uh, they hid even Picasso's charnel house, just as an example, in one of the major uh, exhibitions on um, Picasso at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, they showed the Charnel House, uh, and they said it had to do with the Spanish Civil War, which it doesn't. Uh, and uh, it, in other words, art critics, art historians didn't want to deal with this subject. Actually, that's the reason I did deal, deal with it, because I found that nobody else wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, and uh, they they swayed people into seeing it in a different way. So if the critics are going in that direction, a lot of artists just go along with it and say, yes, you're absolutely right, they're just dead men. And it's deeply existential, and, you know, I have these deep philosophical thoughts. Sounds much better than, yeah, that's about the Holocaust. And for Leonard Baskin, he focused greatly on the issues of social justice, to my understanding, and morality as a theme. Do you, and that's what I've read about him, do you think that that um, broad label was also to distance himself from the theme of Holocaust in his work? No, I don't think so. I think uh, he was a very socially involved artist, um, very left-wing, and very justice-seeking. Uh, and the Holocaust played into that, but it didn't control him. In no way was this the only thing he was interested in. So, you know, this is part of the, of the thing. I, all of these artists who had not been in the Holocaust, uh, the Holocaust became integrated with their own works, with their own iconography. And that was uh, one of the difficulties in writing about the subject was, whereas the first part, my book is called Depiction and Interpretation. And the first part was easy because you could really see, I mean, these are dead Holocaust corpses, there are photographs, here are the pictures, and you can see what's going on. And there was a difference between the way camp artists did it and non-camp artists, etc. But you could you could make sense out of it without too much uh, of an effort. Whereas in order to get to what was underlying, say, Chanel's crucifixion or... Uh, any of the other works we're talking about, you had to get into the artist's style, his own personal iconography, and then see how that got integrated with the Holocaust. And in each person, it's very different. 
Chagall, for instance, uh, in the White Crucifixion, portrays the Holocaust as, uh, this is 1938, so he didn't know anything about camps or anything of the sort, but he portrays it as uh, various scenes of a pogrom. Uh, because his imagination just couldn't take in what was really happening, and he saw the whole thing as a pogrom. However, uh, by the time he was in the United States, his sketches for paintings, but not the paintings themselves, show a great awareness of what was going on. Uh, his sketch for the martyr uh, definitely shows... Um, in the little scenes around the main figure, uh, Nazis killing people and um, his uh, the fact that he took out the swastikas before he uh, showed the white crucifixion in New York shows a certain amount of not wanting to be overly explicit. Uh, so the sketches might show that he did know, and the paintings would show pogroms. So it it's... Uh, you you had to get into the way he was doing things, and it's only recently that the sketches have become uh, available, so that one could actually see that these were things that he did not sell, that he kept in his own collection. Um, so you you really have to get into the artist to find out how he's reacting. And there are many artists that I didn't go into or that I missed or, you know, uh, the book that I wrote was so big that it was difficult getting it published as is. So people, other people can continue. One of the artists that uh, was born after the Holocaust that I wanted to have your thoughts on was Anselm Kiefer and his occupation series. Yes. Complicated. Yes, yes. What are, yeah. Please, please, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on his work. Okay. Uh, the Occupation series shows Kiefer himself uh, performing uh, the Nazi salute in various places that were occupied by the Nazis. And the occupation does not mean what you're working at, but the occupation by the Nazis, and this is a series from 1969. And when I asked him about it, he said that this was the only way that he could enter into the minds of the Nazis that he was so opposed to um, was by trying to be them. And what's interesting is that immediately thereafter, uh, in 1970, 1971, he started doing uh, works that were influenced by Paul Salam's uh, poem that features uh, Margareta as the German and Shulamit as the Jewess, uh, and uh, showing uh, pictures where the males in his work were from the Siegfried series by Wagner, the head of a woman floating in the clouds in 1970 and 71 
uh, and in one case bleeding uh, down onto the snow and contaminating it, uh, are the Shulamit figure from um, Salan's poem. And he said that he learned that poem in high school and that it had a terrific influence on his life. And he then went on to do, uh, in the 10 years later, he did the uh, uh, Margaret uh, and uh, Shalamit series where the line that he writes on the Margareta paintings are your golden hair, Margareta. And she is depicted as wheat in the fields, golden wheat in the fields. And um, Shulamit is a nude woman in the city, and the line on there is your ashen hair, Shulamit, which is the refrains that happen in the Salon poem. And what happens is that Shulamit quickly turns into ashes herself. She dissolves into ashes. And um, Margarita uh, starts getting burnt and starts having a dark shadow uh, to the point that uh, at one point your golden hair Margarita and your ashen hair Shulamit uh, are interchangeable. They're they're both burnt, or that um, your golden hair, Marguerite's, which is a strands of uh, wheat, uh, has black lines next to it, pursued by um, Shulamit's ashes. So this is a a constant refrain in his works, and he kept working on it. much later, in the 90s, he went back to it, and um, it's it's something that he really uh, is obsessed with in some ways. And when I asked him why he chose that imagery, he said, and this is this is shows a, a very funny uh, take of him as a German. Uh, he said, uh, well, Margareta is, you know, Germany. She's definitely the soil of Germany, the earth, etc. Whereas uh, Shulamit, well, Jews are intellectuals that live in the cities. So I found that was very interesting because even though he is uh, opposed to that kind of uh, thinking that is in some ways anti-Semitic, uh, it, it shows in his work. And he actually shows the Margarita uh, Shulamit series of the 70s actually shows um, Shulamit going up and uh, being burnt. There's her head and it, it, the head turns black and these flames leaping up on top of it. But but there is this obsession and the, the idea that Germany killed itself in some ways by the Holocaust, that it pursues the fields of Germany all the time. Uh, and I think that that's part of the way his mind is set. Did he indicate the the transition from 
what he did with the occupation series and those photos of him performing the Nazi salute over different countries that he took on tour from uh, Switzerland, France, Italy, switching then to being uh, incorporating the death fugue by Salon, the poem that you were referencing from the occupation series. I was curious if he mentioned if he thought that the occupation series wasn't getting the impact that he wanted and that's why he switched or. No, I don't, I don't think so. It's, um, he has a strong German identification. Uh, and that has to do with all his, uh, Siegfried and, uh, a lot, he's got a lot of Nazi imagery running through it, which he gives and then he gets rid of. You know, he shows it in ruins. He tears the painting. He burns the painting. Uh, but the images are still there. And it has to do with his own identification with Siegfried. And uh, at the same time that he's doing the heads in the sky, he's doing Siegfried's and um, uh, Siegfried lines like, My father promised me a sword which he graphically describes. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's a problem in, the, in his German identification. He wants, the German part is very, very strong, and he had to include the Nazi thing to understand it. But he, ne- he never did after 1970, he never went back to that imagery. He did halls of the Nazis and uh, various uh, architectural things that have to do with the Nazis, but he never went back to such an open identification either with the Nazis or with Siegfried. That also phases out in the um, mid-70s. And then everything comes together in the in the Margareta and Shulamit series. And it's repercussions later. Uh, He also sees his own part in this problematic history, which is part of his identification. He, He really can't get away from it, even though he realizes that it's destroyed a lot that was there in Germany. People are complicated, you know. If you're intrigued by this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics 
from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.